This morning we're going to begin a new series together, simply called The Way. The Way. Jesus showed up at a time in Israel's history when there was a lot happening all at once. During that time period, we call the intertestament period, the, between the Old Testament and the New, but between Malachi and Matthew, there was a lot that was happening in that time. Most of it within the nation of Israel uh, was that the, the people in power were adding to the laws and the rules and the regulations, and they were forming the religion. So by the time Jesus came on the scene, there was this very, very strict, very complicated religion that had been put together. Now, for the most part, that was all done in, in good conscience. It was, it was all done by well-meaning people. But by the time Jesus came on board, he was able to point out to the folks that in your attempt to help people, you've actually hindered them because you've locked them into this religion that actually hinders the relationship with Yahweh. And so Jesus came to bring a new way. He came to be the way that you and I get to know God again. And for the next four weeks, we're going to look at the way. This morning, we start with a new way. Jesus began his ministry by speaking to people and loving on them and healing them and showing them who he was individually. Along the way, he would say, now don't tell anybody. Don't, don't, don't broadcast that I'm the Messiah yet. I've got work to get done before I get too overwhelmed by the crowds. So don't, don't speak up yet. And, but as he continued to work and continued to move in the lives of people, word got around and before long, the crowds began to show up. And it is on a day where the crowd showed up that I want us to begin this morning. Look with me in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1 in just a moment. Every once in a while, I mention to you what we call mental bookmarks for the Scriptures. And that is that, that sometimes it's hard to remember certain what, what we call addresses. You know, it's hard to remember the reference numbers, the book and the numbers, and it's hard to remember which verses. But there are some references, some addresses that we want to have as mental bookmarks so that we know Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. We know Genesis 1 is creation. You also want to know that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. You want to have that as a mental bookmark so that anytime you come across a verse from Matthew 5, 6, or 7, you can immediately put it in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. It helps us understand it when we know that, that that's the context. So we begin this morning with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to take at least three weeks with the sermon and probably more than that. But let's begin at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. Now, because the crowds were all around, he had to get 
a little bit higher, possibly so that he could see them and they could see him. Eye contact is so important. But also, most likely, so that they could hear him. If he was higher than they, then his voice would carry over them and and they could hear because this would have been a great crowd by now. Chapter, the end of chapter four mentions the fact that the crowd was growing from all different areas. People were coming from all around. So this would have been a great crowd. And in order for them to hear and see, he moved up the mountain and it says he sat down, which is odd for you and for me because we're used to the exact opposite. Y'all get to sit down when I'm talking and I have to do all the standing. It's opposite in their culture. The teacher sat to teach. It was seen as kind of a signal to the, to the, the group who had gathered, okay, now I'm taking my place of authority. I have something to say and you're ready to listen. And so it says he sat, he was taking the position of rabbi. He was taking the position of teacher and his students were ready then to listen. And what he brings to them is a whole new way of thinking. They have been taught for generations that to be right with God started on the outside. What we do, what we say, how we dress, how we look, all of those things are involved in how to be right with God. It's the outward stuff. Jesus was going to turn everything they knew and understood upside down, and he was going to say, no, it's actually, it's actually something that happens within. It's an internal thing that shows up on the outside when it's real, but if you only start with the outside, it never has to go inside to become real. He changes everything, and he shows them a new way. Let me explain it this way. I could take a hundred pounds of steel and I could put it together in just the right form and make an anchor. Put that anchor in the water and it's going to hold, it's going to sink and it's going to hold that boat because it's sunk to the bottom. I could take that same hundred pounds of steel, I could form it in a different way and this time make a buoy that would float on top of the water. How is that possible? It's a hundred pounds of steel. One time it sinks, the other time it floats. What makes the difference? The inside. What's going on on the inside determines the difference between an anchor and a buoy. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the new way we look at the inside to determine how we relate to God. And so he begins with what we call the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, uh, that word just comes from a Latin word that means blessed. And that is the essence of the Beatitudes. He tells us who is blessed. And you'll notice that he doesn't say the people who are blessed are the ones who wear the certain robes or the ones who show up at a certain time, or the ones who pray in a certain way out loud in the synagogue, or the ones who... It's not about the externals. You'll notice all of the Beatitudes deal with the internal, who we are on the inside. 
It's also very interesting that they, that they seem contradictory. If you look at each one, as we will in just a moment, we see that the poor get a kingdom. Those who mourn are comforted. We see there's a, there's a, a juxtaposition. And the reason for that is he's shaking up the whole way of thinking for the people of Israel. He's bringing to them a new way. Let's look then at his words, which are basically an introduction to his sermon. Who gets blessed in the kingdom of God? The Sermon on the Mount is a message about the kingdom. So who gets blessed there? Verse number two, he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How strange to them and how strange to us. We too live in a world that says if you're blessed if you're rich. The people who have the biggest houses are the ones that are blessed. The people who have a new boat and have a fancy car, man, what a blessing. When in reality, he changes that around He says, in reality, it is those who are poor in spirit that are blessed. Well, what in the world is poor in spirit? We get rich in material. We understand that one. But what is poor in spirit? That one who is poor in spirit is the one who is able to recognize his spiritual need. One who is poor in spirit says, I don't have everything I need spiritually. I need God. I cannot be all that I supposed to be, all that I want to be. I cannot on my own. I need God. And in the kingdom of God, it is that person who gets blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the one who says, I have everything, I am everything, but the one who says, I need. It is he who is blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is the one who recognizes his need for God that puts himself in a position where he can receive, be a part of the kingdom of God. You see, as long as you are on your own throne, as long as self is king, Christ cannot be king. You have a throne in your life, but that throne was built so that it only has room for one. As long as you sit on it, he can't. But the poor in spirit says, I recognize I'm not king, I need a king And it is that one who gets to be in the kingdom. It helps me to remember the the parable in Luke 18 where two guys come to church. They showed up on the same day in the same church. One was a religious dude. He was such a religious dude, he wore the religious clothes, he said the religious words. He even looked at others and pointed his finger to make sure they too said the religious words and wore the religious clothes. He showed up in church that day because that's the religious thing to do. And Then there was another guy that came to church that day. 
We couldn't say he was religious. He didn't really understand the whole religion scene. He was used to cheating people from, for their money. He was used to being overlooked and outcast. But he was in church that day. God watched as the two men prayed, the one in his religious garb, pointing his finger at those that weren't wearing religious garb and weren't saying the religious words. He stood before God and he said, God, thank you that I am who I am. Thank you that I'm such a great man. Thank you that I'm not like that guy. No, Robert, I wasn't pointing at you. I'm sorry. <laughs> And in the same moment, that guy in the corner, hiding in the dark, hoping not to be seen or noticed, at the same moment, that guy was saying, God, I know I don't even deserve to be here. Thank you for giving me the privilege to come before you. Would you forgive me of my sin? Which prayer do you think God listened to? They both were in church, but only one of them had church. You know what it means to have church. You've been in church a lot, but every once in a while you get to have church. There was only one who actually spoke to God and only one that God listened to. Jesus said, it is the poor in spirit, the one who comes and says, God, you're holy and I'm not. You're everything and I'm nothing. I need you. It is the poor in spirit who gets to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in, in, in the next beatitude, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we think, how can that be? The word blessed means happy. So how can he, happy is the sad? Blessed are those who mourn? That doesn't make sense to us at first. But he says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. In that verse that I just shared with the kids, Isaiah, God says, I'm going to comfort you like a mom comforts her kid. And it is the one who mourns that receives that comfort. But not just general mourning. Always put a verse in context. Always understand where it was written in the context. What has he just talked about? He has just talked about the internal issues. He's talked about the fact that if you're poor in spirit, you recognize your need, you recognize your sin, then you get to be in the kingdom. And it is right after that that he says, now blessed are those who mourn. In other words, blessed are those who recognize their spiritual need and they mourn the fact that they have that need. Blessed are they who confess their sin and they mourn the fact that they sinned and messed up. Blessed are those who care enough about God and his kingdom to be saddened by the fact that they're not experiencing it yet. Because it is they who will be comforted. 
If you don't care what Jesus did for you on the cross, if you don't care what God offers you today, you're not going to find it. You won't experience it. Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize their need, and blessed are those who mourn, who are, who are saddened by the fact that they have this need. They care that much. They will be comforted. And so it says in Psalm 34 at verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Again, in James chapter 4, we're told to draw near to God. James 4 at 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. That's not the kind of verse we like to talk about. The guy on TV keeps telling me, rejoice and be happy, everything's hunky-dory. James says there comes a time for spiritual mourning. When you recognize your sin and you don't care, there's a problem. When you recognize your sin and you mourn, he says be wretched and mourn and weep. That's where you begin to be in a position to let God do something in your life. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah walks into the temple. He sees the, the Lord is high and lifted up. As soon as he sees God in his holiness, the train fills the temple, the smoke fills it, all the stuff that represents how powerful and big and great and holy his God is. And as soon as he sees God, the next thing it says is, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. He mourned the fact that he was not worthy. He cared that much about it. And so James continues and he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Verse 5, he continues, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. In our world like theirs, it was the powerful who got stuff. Jesus flips that around and he says, in the kingdom, it's different. In the kingdom, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now understand the word meek is not saying weak. The word meek is a, it's a Greek word that was used once they got a horse and they, uh, they broke that horse. So now the horse still has power, still has strength, but he's under control. Blessed are the meek, the ones who say, God, now you're in control of me. I step off the throne, out of the spotlight. God, you're the one who's in charge. You see, how, you see how one beatitude leads to the next? Blessed are the poor in spirit who recognize their need. Then really blessed are you if you care enough about that need to mourn the fact that you're not where you want to be, where God wants you to be. Then... Blessed are the humble enough to do something about it. Blessed are the meek, the humble, those who come to God and say, I need you, I can't on my own. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, Jesus spoke of himself with this same word. He said, take my yoke upon you. 
Learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the word meek. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Jesus demonstrates for us what it looks like to be meek and humble and gentle and so we can learn from him and be like him. Notice it says that they shall inherit the earth. Not that they earned it, but it is inherited. All that we receive from God is an act of grace. You cannot earn it. You cannot be religious enough to get it. Anything we receive from him is a gift from him. It is an act of grace. But he says those who are meek, who are humble, who mourn their sin, who are poor in spirit, recognize their need, it is they who will be blessed. Look at number six, or verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I recognize my need. I'm sorry about my sin. I know that it's, it's all on me, and I'm humble enough to say, I need help, and I really hunger and thirst for it. How badly do you want to be right with God? How important is it to you to be right with God? Most of us would say, oh, it's important. But when we look at our calendar and our life and our anxiety, we know work is more important. Hobbies, family, then maybe, maybe when there's time, we fit God in somewhere down the list. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that righteousness. Righteousness, take out the chus and you understand the word, rightness. Righteousness. Those who really want to be made right, it is they who will be satisfied. They hunger and they thirst for it. you got to really want it. Physically speaking, there are a couple of questions that we always need to ask about our appetite to help us know if we're healthy. One of the things that, that we talk to the doctor every once in a while, he'll say, well, how's your appetite? Well, I usually say, can't you tell? <laughs> How's your appetite? If you're healthy, you have a strong appetite. And if you're healthy, you have an appetite for the right things. There are some unhealthy people that have appetites for really strange things. But a healthy appetite is is driving us to eat and driving us to eat real food, the stuff that's good for us. Same thing is true spiritually. Spiritually, I'm healthy when I have an appetite. I'm hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That hunger and thirst is for righteousness, not for other stuff. It's a strong appetite and it's for the right thing. That's how I know I'm spiritually healthy. Isaiah chapter 55 addresses that very appetite. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? How many of us spend our time on stuff that doesn't really last, stuff that doesn't really matter? 
Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That's one of my favorite verses. <laughs> of course, when it was written in Scripture, when he talked about rich food, he didn't mean what I mean. I mean chocolate. He meant food that's full of the stuff that you need to live. Listen, diligent, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in, in rich food. Be hungry for what God is offering. Desire it. Righteousness is required for a spiritual life as much as food and water is required for a physical life. An unhealthy appetite is small and weak. So let me ask you this morning, how hungry are you? Psalm 63 and verse 1, the psalmist answered that question, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Is that how you relate to the almighty God? I can't get enough. I'm hungry and I'm thirsty. I want to be more like you and I want to relate to you and I want your righteousness more than anything. That is the person who is satisfied. He goes on then to say, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. God is a merciful God and Jesus died on the cross as an act of mercy. Every day we receive new mercies from him. Therefore, if we're going to be like him, we're going to be merciful like he is mercy, and we receive his mercy. The next one says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We started when we're poor in spirit, and we recognized our need, and we, we mourned about that need, and, and we came humbly seeking God, and we are hungry and thirsty for Him, and we begin to be merciful like He's merciful, and then we notice that our heart becomes pure, and as that happens, then we get to begin to see God in a real way that we never thought possible. Matthew chapter 23 Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Folks, we've got, we've got people all around us that are trying to clean up on the outside and look good. They're in churches all across the land this very morning trying to look good, trying to be good, trying to be good enough, and we're trying to clean up on the outside so everything looks right. And Jesus says, man, I love you too much to let you get by with that. I worry about what's the inside. You clean up the inside, the outside takes care of itself eventually. Those who are pure of heart, he says, they shall see God cleaned up on the inside. And then he goes on and he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers. 
As we begin to get our lives right with him and we hunger and thirst, we want more and more and our hearts become pure. We become the makers of peace. Notice he didn't say the peacekeepers. Sometimes it's easy to keep the peace. We give in, we give up, we compromise, we just keep the peace. Sometimes that's easier. But he calls his people in this new kingdom, he calls his people to be peacemakers, to do the hard work that's involved in making peace between people and between people and God. Remember, Jesus is the prince of peace. It is he who allows us to be at peace with God, at peace with one another, and at peace with self. And as we become citizens of his kingdom, we become makers of that peace. We introduce folks to him and we demonstrate what a life of peace looks like. And we begin the hard work of making peace. Blessed are those, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He knew that they would be persecuted. We have not faced harsh, terrible persecution in, in our culture, but it's, it's coming. More and more persecution will come. Understand that he says, blessed are those, or blessed are you, uh, yeah, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Understand that when you get real with him, you get hungry for him, you begin to, to have a pure heart and be, begin to live as a peacemaker, there are some in the world who aren't going to like it. Be ready for it and understand that he is going to bless you through that. But notice also that it is blessed are those who are persecuted for his name's sake. It's not blessed are those who are persecuted because they're just so obnoxious. Some of us get persecuted just because we, we just annoy people. That's not it. But when we live for him in such a way that the world reacts against it, we can be blessed knowing that we are where we're supposed to be, doing what we're supposed to be doing, and we are pure in heart, making peace. 